morning. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Do you want this up or down? Oh, go down. Thank go you. Down. <laughs> Wonderful. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see you. Oh, there's a number of bits and bobs. Okay. We're starting a new series this week. And uh, I hope the community series has been provocative to you, helpful, um, an encouragement to get stuck in and uh, follow them, practice the ways of Jesus, which was principally around being with others, being in community and working out the life of Jesus, apprenticing to Jesus with others. So we're not isolated on our own. So I just want to reiterate the last five weeks of community. And um, if you're able to speak with Ollie and Catherine, if you haven't spoken to them yet, just put your hands up. These guys are heading up our, our group life ministry. And if you're not yet involved in a group that meets in the week, that meets at a suitable time that will work for you, please have a conversation with those guys because that's where it's going to be at. That's where you're going to process through the word of God share the spirit of God with one another and do the journey of life, practicing the ways of Jesus. We're carrying on with that subtitle of practicing the way and we're going to spend five weeks looking at the subject of scripture. You're all like, come on, scripture. Wowzers, the enthusiasm was palpable. Yeah, absolutely sarcastic. So... This is the challenge, isn't it? Is that much of our culture has actually put the written word in front of us as an exercise of intellectualism. Here's a piece of information. Go work on it. And actually the proof of your competency in life is going to be based on your ability to regurgitate that and apply it to something. Our culture principally talks about information rather than formation or transformation. But the word of God is principally about transformation, not information. I want to just uh, suggest a few options for you. Um, We're following in kind of tentative ways John Mark Comer's series of Practicing the Way and uh, we've juggled the different things about so we did community, we're doing, um, we're doing scripture now, we're then going to move on into hospitality and prayer etc etc as we go through the year but you'll find these resources are going to be excellent if you want to go further. The Bible Project is such an easily accessible way of learning about what's in the Bible. Creative, visual, dynamic pursuit of the truth of Scripture presented in a number of ways. Andrew Wilson's book, Unbreakable, even if you might find it difficult to get into deep theology, Andrew unpacks it and makes it really quite accessible most of the time. Okay, And then Shaped by the Word, another excellent resource, and Read the Bible for a Change. What a great title. Just resonates in different ways, doesn't it, as you think of that title and the opportunity that presents. As we approach this most 
challenging and dynamic of texts that has shaped the world in so many different ways. One of the things I want us to do is just think about our posture towards it for a minute. It's been a while since you probably studied English and had to look at these sort of things. Okay? The subject is the person or the thing that's doing the action. The object is the person or thing that is receiving the action. When we approach the Bible, is the Bible the subject? Is that the thing that is at work? Or are we at work on it? Because it's the object. Do I approach the Bible as if it is what's, it's going to do something to me and transform me and almost sits above me and is going to affect me as I approach it? Or do I stand above it and look down on it as an object and say it must be subject to me and I'm going to rule over it and take from it what I want? That's a really important question for how we posture ourselves towards this. There's a whole raft of ways that we can approach the subject of Scripture. We can talk about hermeneutics, the study of the Word of God and the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the interplay of translation and transliteration and how it all comes together and metaphor and meaning and hyperbole and get into the depths of it. But actually, while that is useful and can bring change, we can get stuck in information rather than transformation. And so what we want to do is we want to start off this series by looking at, okay, why should I treat Scripture as the subject that is doing something to me rather than being above it and seeing it as an object? The writer of the book of Hebrews says this in chapter 4, 12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. So we need to get an understanding of, okay, what is this? What is it? Is it just an eclectic collection of random historical texts that might help us with some idea of history, but essentially it's very narrow and it's not really going to do much? Or are we going to approach it as an interesting developmental source of Western society and structure and form and law and morality and ethics and go, that's quite interesting. We can see the origin of English case law and everything through the expression of the Old Testament and New Testament and how Jesus framed things. Or are we going to actually allow it to be the subject that transforms us, changes us, 
and actually is the dynamic scripture, which is the breathed and living word of God. We've got to make our minds up as we approach. I think one of the things that's going to help us do that is to take our posture and take it from Jesus himself. Because essentially, if we're in the room this morning, we're either exploring what it is to follow Jesus or we've already made a decision to follow Jesus. And to follow Jesus is to apprentice under him. He's the master craftsman and we're learning, we're watching him. Do you remember when Beth Croft talked up here? She had a radio and she had a saw and she had different things on the stage. And she was like, I, I spend my different times with God as, as an apprentice, but also as one meditating on his word, relaxing, listening to worship. Do you remember that picture, that analogy she created? And so as Christians, we apprentice to Jesus. Why? Because he said, come follow me, come pursue me, come see what I do so that you go do likewise. So it's purposeful, it's intentional and God is leading us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. So the question then is, how did Jesus approach scripture? What did he say about it? He, little vignettes that we get out of scripture in Mark 12 where, Dave, where Jesus talks about David and, and says that David, when speaking through the Psalms in Psalm 110 about God putting everything under the feet of the Messiah, when he said to my Lord, he will put everything. He said, well, how, how can that be the Lord? If David's talking about himself, it can't be. It must be another that's coming. And the Pharisees are getting really confused. And he says, look, David was talking by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus references the psalm and he says, look, this was David's utterance in the tabernacle, in the place of worship, by the Holy Spirit. It was prophecy being recorded in the Psalms so that we've got it now because he's speaking truth about who I am. Later on, Jesus says that actually Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, speak of him. We'll have a look at that in a moment. As he goes through, Jesus is constantly referring to and basing his worldview on the scriptures. There isn't another paradigm that is shaping who he is. He's based on the word, he's memorised the word and he's living out the word. And there is a, a real challenge there for us in terms of what shapes us and our thinking. What shapes how we see the world. What we understand of reality versus unreality. Jesus had himself utterly rooted in it. Andrew Wilson puts a very interesting quote from his book, Unbreakable. He says this, Our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, 
the crucified, risen and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and have decided to follow him. So when he acts and talks as if the Bible's trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. He takes the position that actually this Jesus that I've encountered, who has transformed my world and my understanding of everything, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life is the primary origin of why I look at the scriptures the way I do. It's this risen person of Christ that is utterly influencing what I see in the text. Because there is a dynamic between the written word of God and the spirit-breathed word of God and the person of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ at work in us. And what we don't want to do is segregate them out. We don't want to go, oh, I'm going to be a student of the word or I'm going to be all Holy Spirit and we can forget that because that's a bit dull. We're going to look at four scriptures together. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at what Jesus says about being rooted in the word of God and that he's bringing things to fulfillment and he's not rejecting them. Mark 12, we're going to look at his interaction with the Sadducees and why they're just ignorant of the word of God and that's why they're making a mistake and not understanding what he's talking about. We're going to look at John chapter 5 where Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and he's going to see why their approach is all wrong, which is why they're not getting it. And then we're going to finish with 2 Timothy 3 where we're going to explore what it is that actually the word of God wants to do in us in that dynamic relationship that we have with it. Is that okay? We'll move reasonably quickly. Okay. Matthew five, seventeen. Jesus says this. Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle, okay, or title, or smallest character of the text, will by no, wing, by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So he's saying, look, I know what I'm doing is utterly radical. What you're seeing, lepers being healed, the broken restored, my interaction with women, what's going on in the temple courts when I throw everybody out, what I'm teaching in the synagogues, when I'm multiplying bread and fish, when I'm doing all these things, what I'm doing is not to destroy, not to tear apart or discredit the law and the prophets. It's actually to what? Fulfill. He's actually being the culmination of everything that's written in here and more. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's a real activity there, isn't there? You break one of the least, then you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus' measure of the word of God against our lives. Whoever does, where else does it say about being a doer of the word, not just a hearer? Yeah? Whoever does and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's active. It's dynamic. This is my way, says Jesus, to fulfill the word of God. And I want my people to know it and I want them to walk their ways in it. He goes on to say this. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's hard, isn't it? Everybody sat there scratching their heads going, seriously? I mean, these guys have spent forever studying the word of God. Forever. They've memorised it. They've done all sorts. How can I get beyond that? I mean, they're tithing a tenth of their mint and their herbs and their this and their that. And they've not only got the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They've got all the prophets. They've memorised to a massive extent. Have you met that guy Saul? I mean, he's a... He's a He's like top of creme de la creme. He knows it all. And you're telling me my righteousness has to be greater than theirs? See, Jesus drops these little seeds of the reality where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He's pointing to a time when actually our righteousness will exceed that of those who pursue the word of God for information and rule keeping because actually his spirit his death on the cross will enable us to be righteous in a way that no one ever could without him and it far strips the righteousness of knowing this inside and out and trying to abide by rules and laws and minutiae Jesus is rooted in the word of God when he's being tempted in the wilderness where does he turn? Deuteronomy, it is written, it is written, it is written to counter everything that Satan's coming at him with. No, it's written. This word stands and it will not fall. No jot or title will pass away until it's fulfilled and I've come to fulfill it. And what I do, Jesus is saying, is I stand on the truth of the word of God and it's firm and it's trustworthy. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 5 to teach the people at each point. He refers to Deuteronomy, he refers to Exodus. And he says to the people, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And so he starts to unpack the Old Testament for people in a way that they understand the heart of God the overarching narrative of the revelation of the kingdom of God from Genesis all the way through to his arrival on earth. And he starts to unpack that. And he starts to show people, do you know what? Moses allowed divorce because your hearts were hardened. 
That's why he allowed it. But I say to you, you've heard it said, somebody pokes you with a stick and you lose your eye, take out their eye also. But I say to you, but I say to you, he has the authority to take the word of God, which was an accommodation in the day, and he has an authority to apply it under the grace of the Holy Spirit into the new life of the kingdom of God that will be available after his death and resurrection. His ministry points beyond himself to that which he is going to fulfill and enable so that when the church is born, people are empowered by his spirit and they can do so much more in him than they ever could do beforehand. Let's have a look at Mark chapter 12. I'm going to try and avoid the classic joke. Here we go. Verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take up his wife and raves up offspring for their brother. Now, this was an accommodation in the Old Testament where there's no social um, network that's going to support a woman whose husband's died and been widowed. There's absolutely no infrastructure for that. And therefore, the onus fell on the brother of the deceased to take up the marriage and ensure that the family line continued, that she was cared for and that there would be continuation. It was a, uh, an instruction of grace. Now, here comes the most hypothetical of hypothetical arguments from the Sadducees. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one took a wife and dying, he left no children. The second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise, so and so until the seventh and no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So they're trying to corner Jesus on this. And there's a bit of sarcasm and the, the, the whole argument's just ridiculous, right? Reducto ad absurdum. It's that idea of let's just create the most ridiculous context possible and then present it as a case against why Jesus is wrong in saying what he's saying. And Jesus just says to them, are you not therefore mistaken because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. See, the Sadducees were kind of like these pretty wealthy urbanite Jews living in the middle of Jerusalem, pretty relaxed, pretty easygoing, enjoying their lives and doing what they want, but they're not students like the Pharisees of the word of God. It's not that important. There is no resurrection and, you know, who knows if the dead are even ever going to have any eternity or not. You know, who knows? We just don't know. And Jesus says, you're mistaken because you don't know the word of God. For when they rise from the dead, they'll neither marry nor are given in marriage, but like the angels in heaven. Ah, angels, you don't believe in those either, do you? 
So Jesus is just having a little, "Mm, you're wrong on that one too. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but God of the living. You're therefore wildly mistaken. Because you don't know what it says. So your doctrine's off and you're clueless and you're going down the wrong track. So their error is through ignorance of the word of God. Let's have a look at the next one. John chapter 5. This time we come to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a real strict agenda of teaching their kids to memorise, to go to scripture school, to absorb as much information. I've already alluded to Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, who was kind of Hebrew of Hebrews, understood it, memorised the scriptures, spent all his time in it and tried to understand it as much as possible. They had not only the Torah, the first five books in the Bible, and the prophets, but they also had the Talmud and the, um, uh, what is it, the Mishnah. So they've got their own rules and their own writings as well as, and they're just putting, as Jesus says, burden after burden after burden on the people. And Jesus says this in John five thirty-eight. the start of 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him, you do not believe. You don't believe me. You don't believe who I am. You don't believe that I've been sent by him. Verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. It all became about the word. How can I study it? How can I memorise it? What does it say? Well, the interpretation is that your beard should be so long and you shouldn't really walk backwards on a Sabbath and you should really completely missing the point of the word. But Jesus' teaching is saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. They got so stuck in the detail that they became above the word of God. And it became a burden on the people. So much so that Jesus is there in the temple and a woman comes in and he heals her from being bent over for 18 years. And they're upset with Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. that information really hadn't conveyed into transformation. Their hearts had not been transformed by the word of God. They just had a whole load of information. Let's land in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's go to verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. And from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, 
for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the person of God, the man, the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the wrapping up, this is the apprenticing to Jesus. Why is the word of God dynamic and helpful? Why is it like a sharp two-edged sword? Why is it given to us? Well, it's given to us by inspiration from God, by his spirit, and it's profitable. It produces life in us. Why? For doctrine. We could see where the Sadducees got it wrong because they didn't know the word of God. They thought there was no resurrection and Jesus corrects them. And says, no, God says, I'm the God, I'm the father of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And it's present tense. They're still alive now. He's the God of the living, not the dead. So doctrine, it helps us understand what's going on in the spiritual realm that we can't see. For reproof, it corrects us. It, it, it stands in and of its own right against falsehood. falsehood. It brings us into line with the person and the character of Jesus. It corrects us. It enables us to change course and redirection. Romans 12.2. The renewing of our minds through the word of God. So that we become his workmanship. And it's the instruction in righteousness, how to live right, how to do life correctly. Why? So that you might be equipped for every good work that you're called to. Elsewhere, Paul writes, he says, look, you are his workmanship. You are Christ's workmanship. You're his craft work in being made. And if we put his word to one side, and I was thinking of putting talcum powder on it and giving it a blow. And I have to admit, I've had periods of my life where that's been the case, right? Where it's just sat there and I've not engaged with it. And it's felt too big. It's felt too challenging. It's felt too difficult. But it also feels too cutting. And I just leave it there. And then there's times I open it and I say to God, speak to me both through your word and your spirit. And we sit under it. And actually what we start to receive is the very life of Christ himself through his spirit. So we don't want to be all word to quote, the was it Stephen Wendy Backland? We don't want to be all word so that we dry up. And we don't want to be all spirit so we blow up. But we want to be word and spirit. So that we grow up. Let's pray. Father God we thank you for your word. I ask you to do a work by your spirit. To cause us to position ourselves appropriately to it. So that we are transformed by it. In this series would you enable us to learn how to handle this. What to do with it. How to share it with one another. How to hear your voice through it. And be transformed not just informed. Amen.
Okay, you may have noticed that our kiddos have come back in, and uh, they have been engaging with God this morning.